So history of the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> this was uh, not as entertaining as three-body problem. I will I'll have to say that to start. Probably, probably our, our biggest slog in a while. That's true, say. actually. It's been a while. I don't think we've had any slogs recently, like flying car. Perhaps our biggest slog in general, actually. Because <laughs> I'm trying to think of the other, the other sloggy books, like GEB. And there was at least a lot of, I mean, there, there was definitely some fun in this book, but it felt the most like work. It, it felt the most like a school, like, like a school history book that you had to read a little bit. Yes. Yes. That said, there were pieces that were, that were, I think, good and interesting. And I think the overall story behind the book is interesting, but totally it, I, I'll be honest, I didn't read every single word of, of this book. No, no, there's definitely a lot of skimming and looking for interesting things i think with this one yeah yeah same but yeah we, we sh- i mean we could say a little bit about why we did this book right yep. so history of the peloponnesian war is an interesting one because there's at least a certain degree of agreement that this is the first and oldest history book that we have and that that terminology is used kind of specifically because Thucydides was the first one to try to do history very accurately. So there are older books than this about historical events or historical periods, right? Obviously, like the Iliad is talking about a period of history, but Homer mythologizes and romanticizes a lot of things that happen to create the best story. And Herodotus was writing before Thucydides too, and he apparently did the same thing where he would kind of mythologize characters and and invoke the supernatural. Whereas in Peloponnesian War, it's sort of the first book about a period of history that just tries to be as accurate as possible. And especially that tries to tell the story from both sides, which I thought was particularly interesting that I know you're going to jump in here. Neil, but the the fact that he sailed around for ten years, right? Was it longer? I think it, it might have been. Was it twenty years? It, I mean, it was basically the whole rest of his life. Once this war started, uh, he was sailing around, collecting stories, getting information on what happened, and putting this book together. Yeah, it is very different from Homer. Like the also the fact that he doesn't really invoke gods and like. He kind of actually yeah, almost no talk of it at all. He, I think there's one mention of it, but in a in like kind of a way of being like almost like a tongue in cheek way. In the beginning, he like shits on that's what I'm that's Herodotus. What I'm yep. Yeah. Yeah. Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> He's basically like other people have tried to write history, but yeah. <laughs> it basically says they're like telling fairy tales. They're not serious about their craft. That's it's, I think basically really where, yeah. That's where line. I was getting at. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was that was really interesting that yeah, this is a actual history book. Like and you know, maybe it's the first, maybe it's the first one, you know, the oldest that we actually have, but it's a really interesting considering the the time period and the other books that kind of we have from that era are all very I mean, you could you could probably call them mythology even though the Trojan War yeah. actually happened and you know, it seems like a lot of those people were real and actual historical figures i don't think you can call the iliad or the odyssey you know uh history book right it's like a historical mythology essentially yeah it's 
it's like historical fiction. Historic, yeah. Yeah, and I think like I wonder if so I guess like one thing I didn't know about this book, and it's probably on Wikipedia, is this book was obviously written down then, right? Because I don't think it could have been uh, oral tradition kind of thing the way that Iliad. No, was. he. Yeah, it was it was all written in scrolls, I think. Yeah. Wow. And it, it was yeah written in scrolls, and well, and that's sort of why I say that it's the oldest history book like that we know of. Right? There may have been others of this style. Although I feel like we would have saved them or if there had been other Greek ones, they would have made it out if this one did. Yeah. Maybe it's something in like Alexandria, a library of Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah. Have made it. Well, in any Eastern history books from this period, we don't really have if they existed in this style. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I think it was written down. And I think the most interesting thing about, or one of the most interesting things about how it was written is that he never finished it. Yeah, <laughs> like how it ends so it literally abruptly. It just ends mid sentence, basically. Yeah, <laughs> which it's so it's it's so interesting. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, and um, it's not like he died yeah. either. You know, it'd be no, he just stopped working on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, literally in the middle of a sentence. Yeah, he, he did first to Ephesus, the where he made a sacrifice to Artemis, and then it's just ellipses. And just yep, is over. <laughs> so. Are they positive that he ended it there, or did like the scroll was it damaged? Anything like that? The introduction says he abandoned it there and just never okay. picked it back up again. Wow. So I think that that's the consensus because I guess we have that whole scroll and it just stops there. Yeah. He wasn't getting enough. Uh, enough downloads so you just gave up yeah like, the advance was too low yeah <laughs> <laughs> couldn't find yeah, so the sponsor that part of it's pretty interesting the other part that's interesting is it's written in nine books is it is it nine i think it's nine eight books and each of them has a pretty different style where he he kind of like changed how he tried to write about history as he went. And it, it almost starts out a little more mythological and then gets more, more and more textbooky as he goes on, which I, I don't know if you felt this way, Neil, I definitely found it harder to read as it went on. Yeah. Whereas the, the beginning was more grand and exciting because it's almost all speeches. It's which are fine. Bits I of, actually thought the speech parts were great. The speeches are great. The speeches are really fun to read. Uh, but the speeches are also probably the least accurate part of the book. Yeah. Because he does say in the intro that he, he he says something to the effect of like, I tried to write down the speeches as accurately as possible, but also where needed, I just wrote what they should have said in the situation, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot of the speeches are definitely made up. Uh, but they're Which really is probably good. why they sound really good because it's like which it's probably why like they sound movie. really good. You know, it's like yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's written for entertainment value. But yeah, I think you're, like the parts that were harder were the parts talking about like the formations and like the movements and like those were more like told matter of factly, not like a story. There's um, a lot of then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, which is actually an interesting question like the the purpose of history i guess like is it is it to 
and it probably depends, but it's like, is the, is the purpose to entertain? Is the purpose to remember something that happened with 100% accuracy? Because I don't know if that's even possible. Yeah, it's like, it's it's interesting, right? Because like, obviously, you know, I think most things from this time period were more like the Iliad, you know, even from the Eastern traditions, like in India, like the Mahabharata is very similar to the Iliad, not in plot, but in terms of style and the fact that like there's a you know, mortals and gods kind of very interactive uh, with each other. And probably, I mean, it's based on a true battle that happened or a true war that happened. But, you know, obviously it wasn't like the way it was. It's a mythological, it's a historical fiction to your point, Nat, about the Iliad. It's the exact same way. And I think a lot of those stories have survived probably because it's entertaining. Yeah. In addition to, and the speeches are all, you know, it's like just done in a way that's like, you're almost like reading a movie or like watching a movie or something uh, or a movie script. And uh, yeah, whereas this is not like that at all. (laughs) Minus the speeches, I think. But then that speeches are probably the least accurate part of this book. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So should we talk about like the actual war, like what the Peloponnesian War was? Yes, I think that'd probably be good to get a little bit of overview of. Yeah, and the two and, you know, major players. Kind of interesting, yeah, th- there's also one of the interesting things about either how the book was structured or just like maybe the challenges of reading it. It was kind of like hard to keep everything together, right? Like you start off with this general idea of, okay, sort of like Athens and Sparta, they had this pact, then they you know, each sort of pointing the finger at the other one for violating it. And then they start fighting. And then you've got so many cities and regions that come into it that I kind of like, I lost some of the, th- or I lost some of the plot pretty quickly. I was like, which, like, like who's allied with who? And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You almost needed like a roster at the beginning. <laughs> like this team is on it. this side. This team is on that exactly. side. Yep. Yeah, because there's so many of these like little kingdoms that are talked about or these little, you know, city states that are talked about. And it's hard to keep track of just what's happening. I mean, you know, the two major players, but then beyond that, it was a little difficult. Totally. There there were actually a bunch of things um, about. Well, I guess so maybe taking a step back, Athens versus Sparta was like essentially the main the main sort of players in the in in the, the the fight, but then there were all these small you know allies essentially that each of them had that play a pivotal role, but they're you know they're not the two main uh, belligerents, I guess, in this in the right. war. I, I was going to say there's a lot of really interesting commentary, I think, on Sparta's style versus Athens' style of government and lifestyle and everything. Yeah, the. The, the speech is talking about the different ways of life in the relative cities, you know, and what that meant for the war, I think was like pretty interesting. It, it felt very familiar to other topics or to other books we've talked about where the kind of like the perils of excess, you've got a lot of kind of these accusations getting thrown around kind of from both sides, but I feel oh, yeah. like especially the Spartans talking about the Athenians where basically saying that like they've gotten soft with all of their excess and they just like sit around talking about things all day. And so they're gonna be pretty easy to like 
go get them. <laughs> the the kind of like good times make weak men uh, premise. Like you you see that come up a lot in this. In yeah, this and I think so th- and I think Athens was pretty reliant on the fact that it was wealthy and could hire mercenaries, and a lot of their you know kind of military strength came from people that they paid. And I think Sparta right. really looked down on that because you know Sparta was more uh, militaristic, I think, and more or, or uh, certainly not a democracy the way that Athens was. And I think Sparta viewed Athens as being you know they they were rich but they were soft. Yeah, and I think Athens viewed Sparta as like these like creatures, you know, like less kind of than like brutes. Humans. Yeah, yeah brutes. exactly, less than human, not as sophisticated. That the that terminology is actually interesting about them as brutes because it does bring back this idea that used to be more common of that basically anybody who wasn't in your immediate tribe was almost not human. Yeah. Right? Like almost a different species. You saw little bits of that in some of the speeches here. The speeches about the two types of uh, styles were were really interesting. Like the there were some speeches that were criticizing and that were made by Athenians criticizing Athenian democracy. But I was like, man, this could be written about the United States. Like this could have been made like last week. Like there was one about, I'm going to pull it up. I don't know if it's in my notes, but I have it here. Um, Is this the Mytilenean debate? Probably. Yeah. Okay. So there's one here, which is like, uh, this is from the book. So a state of affairs has been reached where a good proposal honestly put forward is just as suspect as something thoroughly bad. And the result is that just as the speaker who advocates some monstrous measure has to win over the people by deceiving them, so also a man with good advice to give has to tell lies if he expects to be believed. Mm. Kind of like what you have to do to win, right? An election, even if you have good intentions, you know, you kind of got to play the the dirty game (laughs) to win. Yeah, let's see. I had something like that. I, I have another one while you're looking for that one. I think it's from the same section. So, mm-hmm. uh, thus, neither side had any use for consci- conscientious motives. More interest was shown in those who could produce attractive arguments to justify some disgraceful action. As for yeah. the citizens who held moderate views, they were destroyed by both the extreme parties, either for not taking part in the struggle or an envy at the possibility that they might survive. A deal is like what? <laughs> yeah. Here we well, are. so probably worth clarifying. I this one I did not read. I I couldn't get through it myself. But uh, I was reading a little bit about it before, and one of the questions I had for you guys were regarding the parallels. Like, what were all the yeah. parallels you noticed? And uh, since you're asking that, a deal, can I keep reading? Because yeah. I've I've got yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. next like paragraph that Neil started. It's so good. So this is continuing right where Neil left off. Just about. Uh, The simple way of looking at things, which is so much the mark of a noble nature, was regarded as a ridiculous quality and soon ceased to exist. Society had become divided into two ideologically hostile camps, and each viewed the other with suspicion. Everyone had come to the conclusion that it was hopeless to expect a permanent settlement, and so, instead of being able to feel confident in others, they devoted their energies to providing against being injured themselves. As a rule, those who were least remarkable for intelligence showed the greater power of survival. Such people recognized their own deficiencies in the superior intelligence of their opponents, 
Fearing that they might lose a debate or find themselves outmaneuvered and intrigued by their quick-witted enemies, they boldly launched straight into action, while their opponents, overconfident in the belief that they would see what was happening in advance, and not thinking it necessary to seize by force what they could secure by policy, were the more easily destroyed because they were off guard. <laughs> There's that whole section, Amazing. and then... Oh, okay, this is the other one I was thinking of. <laughs> It was equally praiseworthy to get one's blow in first against someone who was going to do wrong and to denounce someone who had no intention of doing any wrong at all. Family relations were a weaker tie than party membership, since party members were more ready to go to any extreme for any reason whatever. These parties were not formed to enjoy the benefits of the established laws, but to acquire power by overthrowing the existing regime. And the members of these parties felt confident in each other, not because of any fellowship in a religious communion, but because they were partners in crime. (laughs) If an opponent made a reasonable speech, the party in power, so far from giving it a generous reception, took every precaution to see that it had no practical effect. Wow. This was in Athens, I'm guessing, what you just described. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it was because there was no, it. yeah, there yeah. were no parties in Sparta. Sparta was like a totalitarian, uh, or like oligarchy, yeah. right? I think it was more, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But Athens was a was a democracy, and people yeah. like they have votes and stuff in the book happening for. Yeah, for the reason things. I asked yeah. is because the, the one of the few things I did get through in the book was around the Spartan assembly, so I wasn't sure where yeah. where what Nat was describing t- took place. Uh, that's wild. I mean, that's basically the situation where, I mean, not quite as extreme, but part of the like speech giving and then tearing down at all costs is like obstructionism to the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. It actually Um, makes you feel a little bit better about like, it's like, Hey, we're not uniquely fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) We We have all these parallels to other declining societies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right, actually, there, in some what, ways, it makes you feel worse. Now, now that I think about it, I'm like, wait, does that mean it's inevitable then? It's just, it was, it, the seeds of the destruction were like set up at the beginning, you know, but when we pick democracy as our, as our uh, government of choice. But what's that Churchill another, quote? Is it like, I think it's like democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. The, the, except for all <laughs> yeah. the others. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, okay, there's another passage I have to read on this subject because it's just so good. Okay. You have become regular speech goers, and as for action, you merely listen to accounts of it. If something is to be done in the future, you estimate the probabilities by hearing a good speech on the subject. And as for the past, you rely not so much on the facts, which you have seen with your own eyes, as on what you have heard about them in some clever piece of verbal criticism. Any novelty in an argument deceives you at once, but when the argument is tried and proved, you become unwilling to follow it. You look with suspicion on what is normal and are the slaves of every paradox that comes your way. The chief wish of each one of you is to be able to make a speech himself. And if you cannot do that, the next best thing is to compete with those who can make this sort of speech by not looking as though you were out, you were at all out of your depth while you listen to the views put forward by applauding a good point, even before it is made. And by being as quick at seeing how an argument is going to be developed as you are slow at understanding what in the end it will lead to. (laughs) That's Twitter. I know. It's literally Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) 
<laughs> slaves to the paradoxes is really interesting. What is that referring to? Or are there any are there any modern day parallels you were able the, to draw that to? The modern day par- parallel would be like conspiracy theory stuff. Yeah. Or, you know, being like, oh, you know, like, uh, you know, you can't trust a scientist, but you can trust this, you know, guy with yeah. 20,000 Instagram followers. Yeah. Right. It's like, I'm much more interested in like a novel explanation about something than the one that makes the most sense or is the most agreed upon or most researched. Yeah. I, I suppose the other one is always that it's always the same folks who believe government can't do anything, but can pull off large scale conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Twitter is a great, a great way to put it. Adil. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, like these speeches were were great, but you're right, Nat. They were probably like mostly made up. Like, you know, they were not maybe not mostly made up, but like. Uh, and to be fair, he made them up if he did make them up, which is an accomplishment. Yeah, and I mean, he was an Athenian, so he yeah he definitely was critiquing his country here, right? Like he, he yeah. saw these problems. There, there's this other interesting idea he brings up through these speeches that. I think kind of like talks about these problems of democracy that I, I thought was pretty interesting. We talked about a bit where, uh, and this is actually in the same section, but he says we should realize that a city is better off with bad laws. So long as they remain fixed than with good laws that are constantly being altered, that lack of learning combined with sound common sense is more helpful than the kind of cleverness that gets out of hand and that as a general rule, states are better governed by the man in the street than by intellectuals. These are the sort of people who want to appear wiser than the laws, who want to get their own way in every general discussion because they feel that they cannot show off their intelligence in matters of greater importance, and who, as a result, very often bring ruin on the country. But the other kind, the people who are not so confident in their own intelligence, are prepared to admit that the laws are wiser than they are and that they lack the ability to pull to pieces a speech made by a good speaker. They are unbiased judges and not people taking part in some kind of a competition. So things usually go well when they are in control. You, you know it's what that strikes me as? That strikes me as intellectual yet idiots on one side. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I guess the other related principle here is uh, Chesterton's fence. Yeah, like the respect for the laws kind of thing. Like you might not understand why the law is there, but you're, I guess, assuming that it has a purpose that you don't understand and respecting it. But yeah, the first group was definitely like the first thought that came to my mind was intellectually yeah, idiots. It's like they've and been also around just career forever. politicians. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like that's yeah. part of what he's saying here, too, is if you have no other way to like prove your capabilities than by doing politics you will necessarily do too much politics because you have nothing else to hang your hat on. It, I was, maybe you mentioned this, Adil. Somebody was talking about this, how like in the US, a lot of politicians used to like do something else before going into politics. Like it was more common that they were, you know, decorated military general or you know, doctor like or something from business or yeah, yeah, doctor, right? They had something else and then they went into politics later. Whereas now you have a lot more career politicians. Well, it was and a part-time job when, yeah, when the country too, was founded. Right? It was like Congress met for a period of time and then they would go home and do their job. Yeah, go back to their real jobs. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was just so, so much less to do as a country. 
the scope I mean, of work, huh? right? Like if you think they, of US they were founding it, there was no structure. I think if you if you there if you told no them that they had though. to fill their day with some political bullshit, I bet they could have done it, right? Yeah, Maybe. like I guess like yeah. deal. How much of like our actual jobs are are like bullshit work? And I wonder how much like you add that into politics. Like how much work is just stuff that is just at the mark, not really do. You know, I'm not saying every politician is doing nothing, but like there's probably a lot of their day is spent on stuff and, that is like just yeah. filling up the time I mean, essentially. To be clear, I'm not arguing that they're doing a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. Just <laughs> more so that there's. It doesn't seem possible for it to be part-time now, even if you were like efficiency to the max, just because of how real-time everything is, especially in foreign policy. Mm. But, but how even, much like, are Congress people doing that cool. versus executive branch? Because executive branch was full-time yeah. from the beginning. Like legislature was mm. part-time. Yeah, that's just a good distinction, Neil. That's legislature yeah. is still part-time. You're not saying actually. all of government. A lot, yeah, just yeah, a lot of state yeah. uh, legislatures are actually still technically part-time like they don't meet for all 12 months like they meet for six months of the year i don't know exactly how many months but because there was a uh somebody in, in maryland who whose uh kids went to school with us and she was like a she had like a day job and then she was also elected to the state legislature mm. and she oh, like cool. she just like but it was a job that she could take off for six months from but she was able to keep doing both which was kind of interesting but that's because it's a state yeah, legislature. Probably, that probably keeps you so much more grounded in the community you're actually representing. You that's actually spend yeah. time there instead of living in DC. DC ironically gets no representation and all of it because everyone is there all the time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's such a good point. And then they have no senators. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of them. They have, and none the house, they have right? all the senators and none of the senators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does DC have a seat in the house deal? Uh, I don't believe so. There I can check. Okay. I don't believe so. Do they get any electoral college? They do get electoral college because they get to vote. But yeah, no senators and no representatives. It's so crazy. Oh, sorry. No, no, it has no senators, but its representative in the House is a delegate with limited voting privileges. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm not sure. Let's find out. Like an observer or something. The, like, wait, this is this is hilarious, guys. The U.S. House of Representatives has a 4.0 on Google <laughs> with 42 Google reviews. <laughs> How are there only 42? <laughs> and who are the 42? <laughs> and who are they? Ah, uh, one one star from N.W. Inlander. Why does Representative Andy Biggs think that masculinity is linked to murdering children and shooting them until they are beheaded? And he says it is because of single mothers, because he loves to cash those NRA checks. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the Google this is exactly as section. unhinged as I was hoping. Yeah. <laughs> so DC's delegate in the House of Reps can sit on and vote in committees, introduce legislation, participate in legislative debates. <laughs> But she cannot vote on bills being considered by the full house. So it is pretty limited. Now nah, you got to read us the next review. <laughs> I know you saw a good one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is one star from James Redenbaugh. Seems to only represent corporate interest. Would not recommend. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that comment has uh, ten thumbs up. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I've got I've got one more. <laughs> Doesn't really represent anybody. Wouldn't let it represent me again. <laughs> <laughs> Although bringing it back to the book, I bet people would have written these reviews about the Athenian assembly as well at the time. Probably. Just a bunch of speech goers. Yeah. Bring it back to the book. You guys said something interesting earlier. You guys were mentioning that one of the criticisms of Athenians were that they were soft. But in the summaries I was reading was they were actually like very militarily active. They were like Yeah. They're they're navy, especially. They're navy. Yeah. Well, I think I think the I think it was that they had a soft and decadent way of life. Yeah, okay. like the Spartans yeah. would call them soft because the Spartans had more of like a, I don't know, like austere lifestyle. Like they didn't have mm-hmm. the, you know, they, they weren't as rich of a society. And uh, Nat, to what Nat was just saying, the, the Navy was incredibly strong for the Athenians. That was their, their biggest strength. And they also had a strong merchant class because of that, partially because of that. Mm-hmm. They did a lot of trade. And, and that was not, I think, things that Sparta really did. Like Sparta was not a, commercial um kind of like kingdom god i got a little bit of this vibe too that the athenians were kind of like gangsters because they had such a strong navy and you know greece is all islands they had so much control over it because they could control all the waterways that there was this little bit of like okay you're in athenian territory but you also kind of like have to be or else they'll just like sink your ships and cut you off from food and resources so There's I actually think it was a great quotation of- about this. <laughs> oh, do you have one? Yeah, it's yeah. number uh, nine in the in the list, but um, I'll Go just read it. it. So it's it, this is from the book. In other ways, too, the Athenians as rulers were no longer as popular as they used to be. They bore more than their fair share of the actual fighting, but this made it all the easier for them to force back into the alliance any state that wanted to leave it. For this position, for this position, it was the allies themselves who were to blame. Because of this relux- reluctance of theirs to face military service, most of them to avoid serving abroad had assessments made by which instead of producing ships, they were to pay a corresponding sum of money. The result was that the Athenian navy grew strong at their expense, and when they revolted, they always found themselves inadequately armed and inexperienced in war. So they basically had to pay like a protection fee. <laughs> To the yeah. they were like either you got to make us ships or you got to pay us money if you want us to be allies with you or friends with you. <laughs> yeah, and either way, you were making the Athenian military stronger in the process, right? Like, and then you couldn't really leave. <laughs> like, what were you going to do? We we should actually talk about the navy stuff briefly because some of these accounts of the naval battles I thought were so interesting because I'd never thought about it that much before, but. Before guns and cannons, you couldn't have these the same kinds of crazy naval fights that you can have today. And so a lot of the naval battles were literally them just like parking their ships next to each other. <laughs> and then the like hoplites running onto the other ships and fighting hand to hand. Like it was v- pretty crazy to imagine that <laughs> yeah. going. <laughs> it's, it's, there's this little bit of like, okay. And I guess they, there was some, there was archery and javelin throwing, but the range on that was fairly limited too. And then the the ships were fragile enough that they didn't seem to want to like ram each other very much. So there was a lot of just like parking and then hack and slash. Yeah. That was pretty interesting. 
Yeah, and there was also a piece of recent history, recent not to us, but recent to them that kept getting brought up throughout the book that's I think related to this was the the war the wars, I guess, against the Persians. Mm-hmm. And how I think the I think the Sparta did a lot in that war in terms of I think people and sort of fighting ability, but then I think Athens did a lot from a naval perspective. And they were they were allies in that war against Persia, but there was also it seems like some bad blood from them that stemmed from that war in the first place. Yeah, I got that I got that vibe too, but I can't remember exactly. I can't remember why. which side thought the other forth. one didn't give its all. To yeah. It. I'm not sure. I think Athens thought that Sparta didn't or something. There was something like that that they like quit early or something. Mm, I have to find it. But I'm sure Sparta wouldn't say that. So Yeah, yeah. That was like I think an Athenian uh criticism of them. Do you remember this uh story about the Persians attacking Egypt and uh how they couldn't they couldn't deal with the navy in Memphis, so they drained the lakes to beach all the ships. The story was so crazy. The the king then sent out to Egypt another Persian Megabasus, the son of Zapyrus, with a large army. He arrived by land, defeated the Egyptians and their allies in battle, and drove the Hellens out of Memphis. Is it Hellens? Hellenes? It's probably Hellenes, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Drove the Hellenes out of Memphis. In the end, he penned them up on the island of Persopotus and besieged them there for 18 months. Finally, he drained the channels around the island by diverting the water elsewhere. The ships were thus left high and dry. Most of the island was connected with the mainland, and he captured it by marching across to it on foot. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's incredible. Can you imagine? You think you're all just like safe on your island with all of your ships <laughs> fighting off the Persians, feeling so good, and then the water just starts going down. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Can you imagine the conversations when the levels dropped like enough to be noticeable, but it wasn't clear it was going away? <laughs> yeah. The tide starts going warm? out and it's just not coming yeah. back in. Like, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. guys. <laughs> I mean, that would seem like an act of God. You're like, oh. I'm really curious, like, how they did that. How big were these channels? I mean, the, the dam you must have had to build or. What year did yeah. this happen? That is a good uh-huh. question. It's in the beginning of the book. Uh I mean, I think the war was between... 479 to 435 was in yeah. that period. And then this war was BC. 431 to 404. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, another interesting, just a little thing that I highlighted on that. Obviously, it took a super long time, but the size of these battles is incredibly small in yes. a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, I guess small to us because small the populations to us. are so much bigger now than they were at yeah. that time. Yeah. Or if you compare it to a modern war, right? But here here was the uh the count from one of the as I understood it, larger battles. Uh the number of those killed and captured alive on the island were as follows. Altogether, four hundred and forty hoplites had crossed over, and of these, two hundred and ninety-two were taken alive to Athens. 
the rest having been killed. About 120 of the prisoners were of the Spartan officer class. The Athenian offices were light since there had uh, been nothing in the nature of a pitched battle. The total time taken over the siege from the naval battle until the battle on the island was 72 days. So it's a th- three, almost three month battle with like 600 people. I mean, it's wow. so small. <laughs> so the total population of Athens around that time was supposedly like low hundred thousands. So 600 Whoa. people is actually a, it's actually kind of a decent lot. chunk of that. Yeah, it's actually a yeah. decent chunk. No. That's so interesting to imagine. I mean, that's like two zip codes in Austin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not many people. And that's like the center of the, maybe not the center of the world, but like probably one of the bigger, more successful cities in the world at the time. Totally. So it's like the battle is small, but probably everyone at home is affected in some fashion. If you have a thousand people yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. almost a percent of your population, right? Yeah, so yeah. A, which puts a battle, a battle, a single battle where the U.S. sends three million people, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I always think about the Russian losses in World War Two. Oh yeah, they had the, the most skin like, in the game for sure. I think of other yeah. than you know, you could say it was like a really Germany, high percentage, right? Germany and England did too. Yeah, but France, I don't want to get my numbers wrong, but it's like in some like Battle of Stalingrad, I think was like. In the millions of casualties. Yeah. Damn. Let me check real quick. 27 million people died for the Soviet Union. Yeah. Yeah. So casualties on the Soviet side from the Battle of Stalingrad were 1.1 million people. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, they, they took the brunt of it because, I mean, you know, France kind of rolled over quick. England never got land invaded and you know, like they also, the U S didn't get land invaded. We got attacked, but not land invaded. And you know, Russia was kind of the, well, the Soviet union, I guess at the time yeah. took the brunt of, uh, of the, the German army. It was 15% of their population yeah. that died. Yeah. That's wild. That's massive. Yeah. That is massive. That's insane. Yeah. Can you imagine 1% of like India's population or China's population in a battle? <laughs> like India's at oh 1.4 billion people right now. Yeah, like, wow. <laughs> be 14 million people, right? In one battle. Yeah, it was 1%. So if they had the same losses as Russia, that's what, 210 million people? Jeez. Jeez. Yeah, that's that's, crazy. that's wild. It's actually amazing that the Soviet Union came back from that to be a world power so quickly. Like, they bounced back very quick. Especially since you assume that's going to be mostly the young people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, young men. Like, the young male population is probably, like, decimated. The males who survived, they were busy the next few years. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Which I actually, you know what? Biologically, that actually uh, makes sense because yeah, males I mean, are more expendable by a exactly. long large margin uh than females and probably the females didn't die like very much in world war ii because i don't think i don't think like a lot I, I could be wrong but i think uh other than a couple russian cities 
a lot of it was like battles by the with you know military battles. They weren't necessarily like Moscow wasn't getting invaded by the Germans, or the interior wasn't. Like I, I don't think how like how far did the Germans get into the Soviet know. Union? Like what was the we should do like point? a good World War II book. I I know embarrassingly little about World War II for a father. I feel like. <laughs> It's, it's part of your job once you have kids you're like you got to pick a war and get really knowledgeable about it like, do civil war do revolution Palpation war. war there we go yeah war on terror Not like the other dads some cool dad war on terror war on terror <laughs> yeah i don't know i, I don't know very yeah. much about world war ii unfortunately that would be fun though we should do that yeah yeah if anyone listening has a good recommendation i need something after three body problem mm-hmm. Inter- intergalactic war that that book is amazing not to hijack every episode with a three body <laughs> problem, like praise <laughs> session <laughs> have you finished all of them now i have like five percent left of the nice. last one nice. i'm like milking it <laughs> yeah. trying to go a little slower <laughs> yeah don't want it to end how much battle detail was in the later part of this book battle detail yeah it was almost more like accounting as the book went on i feel yeah. like in the beginning there was a lot more of like describing the fighting but as i remember as it went on it became a lot more like this battle happened and you know this many people died on this side and this many people died on this side it just like and I think this kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, where it got a little bit harder to read as it went on because it did feel like he he chose to be more accurate in his accounting at the expense of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there was one one thing in the later parts of the book which was interesting, which was the plague that broke out. Oh and, yeah, and I have a quotation oh. which is actually like. Well, I'll read the quotation, then I'll give the commentary. Uh, So from the book, so the summer ended. In the following winter, the plague broke out among the Athenians for a second time. In fact, it had never entirely stopped, though there had been a considerable decline in its virulence. The second outbreak lasted for no less than a year, and the first outbreak had lasted for two years. And it's actually interesting because that's kind of like the COVID path as well. Like, big outbreak for a couple years decline you get like a second burst of it but it's a lot less dangerous and then it kind of like peters out i mean all to be fair this plague seemed a lot more like an actual plague like it was a yeah it was i don't know if it was the bubonic plague but it was seemed like people were like dying left and right in this plague and everyone who's taking care of someone who is sick also died it seemed like also dying yeah yeah and i think that affected the war actually it seemed like yeah i think it did because it set athens back quite a bit yeah a deal since you were asking about uh the battles there was one other interesting tidbit here that just talking about the difficulty of like fighting especially Mm -hmm. in i think this this was like a battle at night or something and basically because it was all hand-to-hand combat and you didn't have people marching in lines and shooting at each other I guess it was really easy to get mixed up about who was who. Uh, if there wasn't like super clear dress for it. So yeah. I'll just read this passage. The Athenians were trying to find each other and taking all who came towards them to be enemies, even though they might be people on their own side now escaping back again. 
By constantly asking for the watchword, which was the only way they had of recognizing each other, they caused much confusion among themselves by all asking for it at once and at the same time revealed it to the enemy. It was less easy for them to discover the watchword of the Syracusans, who, being victorious and in a compact body, did not have the same difficulties in recognizing each other. The result was that when the Athenians met a detachment of the enemy, which was weaker than they were, it escaped them through knowing their watchword. While if they themselves failed to give the answer, they were killed. <laughs> so, wow, it's just like th- these interesting forms of guerrilla warfare by having like a tight unit that all knows each other and then figuring out the like secret password of the enemies. You could almost like get them to kill themselves. Yeah, it's like losing a thousand of your uniform. Yeah. That's kind of everything I think. There there might have been a slight fourth turning type vibe from one of the sections where they were talking mm-hmm. about how I guess it had been a generation since Athens had previously been in a war. And there uh, were um uh, I think I have a quote here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, actually about Sparta and Athens. It was about both. It says so they're saying at the start of, this is about the start of the war. Nothing in their designs was on a small or mean scale. Both sides put everything into their war effort. This was natural enough. At the beginning of an undertaking, the enthusiasm is always the greatest. And at that time, both in the Peloponnese and in Athens, there were great numbers of young men who had never been in a war and were consequently far from unwilling to join in this one. Yeah. Far from unwilling. They were enthusiastic to join this one. Yeah. Because they didn't know what war was like, basically. Like basically, yeah, was it was a, like both sides were kind of like yeah. eager to start fighting because they were yeah. like, "Oh, this will be like they they didn't know what the what it no what memory it was. of war, yeah, 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 yeah." Yeah, they had like this past generation and maybe some yeah. old people who understood from the Persian Wars, um, but that was the last time it sounded like like it sounded like they had a, a period of yep. like a whole cycle of prosperity and a lot of people who were of fighting age kind of never were alive when there was an active war going on. We're probably the first, no, we are the first like fourth turning generation where we have access by proxy of like movies and other like very stimulating media of memories of war. Like a book, a story can capture it to some degree and everyone's had that generations back. But you watch like a really gruesome war movie and it obviously doesn't compare to the experience of war, but it's so much more than hearing about it and knowing about it in the abstract. So I wonder for, like for sure. how much of that dulls our like dulls our hunger for it. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. And I think you also said something in a in a past episode where we were talking about like the the percentage of years that there's been an active war on the planet. And, oh, and it yeah, was like was sky high of history. And yeah, yeah. And it was like sky high, but it was only in like one place, not necessarily everybody in the world being affected by that. But now we can actually see images of all of that just yep. on our Twitter feed or whatever or on, on TV. And yeah. it's like, yeah. So, so we are more exposed, like all of us, have, even though none of us, at least on this podcast, have ever been in the military and fought in a war. I feel like we've been exposed still to and through movies and through TV and through just like secondhand accounts, which obviously isn't a replacement for the the real thing, yeah. but it's but it's enough to dull the hunger for yes, it. yeah, that sense of like yeah, because I could definitely see like if you had you know young like especially young men who were kind of just craving that sense of adventure or whatever, and there was no sense of like the horrors of war, why it would actually be kind of attractive. 
Yeah. Especially if you lived in like a decadent Might be easy lifestyle. to romanticize it. Yeah. yeah. And you'd hear stories from like old timers who would always make it sound better yeah. probably than because they were survivorship biased. They're the ones who made it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't really have many contemporary war legends. Like you wouldn't have like a Homeric uh, story about any individual in the last like maybe 30 to 40 years. Right. I can't think of you many. have a there's, lot of there was the sniper in Iraq. Right. Yeah. Chris uh, Kyle. Yeah. yeah. Chris, Chris Kyle. Kyle. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like that has sort of at least been overshadowed by the like the you have a lot more uh, about the horror Walker style. Of yeah. Horrors of yeah, war. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I watched one actually recently that that's on Netflix, but it's not a Netflix produced movie. So it's actually good. Uh, Mosul. Mo- How do you say that town's na- city's name? Mosul. Mosul. I think in it's Iraq. Mosul. Yeah. yeah, I think it's and it's good. basically about like an Iraqi security force team. It's like in Arabic, actually, the movie, but it's it's very very good. It's basically f- told from the Iraqi security force, like not the the uh, Al Qaeda or ISIS um, side, but they're basically fighting. And it's they talk about the Americans. There's no real Americans actually in the movie, but they talk about mm-hmm. the Americans, kind of who are their allies, and they're they're using NATO weapons because that's what they've been given, but. It was actually a very interesting movie and it was it, it really was like about the horrors of it because all these people who are in the Iraqi security force have kind of paid personal the personal price for being in that force. Like whether it's like family members or like losing their home or whatever, like there's a cost to being in it. And you just it's a different perspective than what we see because I feel like every Iraq movie I've ever seen has been American. Like it's been about the yeah, American perspective. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. This was more like very much yeah. a local battle. Interesting. Clint Eastwood did something kind of cool. I think this was like around 2010 where he had two movies back to back. I believe they were Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers, which showed the American side and Japanese side of the Battle of Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. And he just released them within a couple of years of each other. I think I'm getting the names right, but uh, it was definitely Clint Eastwood, definitely Battle of Iwo Jima. It was just neat to see like his two back-to-back projects was yeah yeah both sides of the same battle yeah, yeah. that is cool. All right, well, well, should we wrap it up, guys? Yeah, next episode of time, the one we've been foreshadowing. Three body finally problem. happening. Three body problem. Adil, are you done? Are you almost done? No, that's my weekend. This weekend, nice. I think we should It'll do be a good like weekend. a. Uh, Peloponnesian War style mic drop just never get to the episode and the podcast here mid sentence <laughs> <laughs> and the podcast mid sentence never come back again sorry before we wrap funny that I'm the one extending the book I didn't read uh, <laughs> Hellenica was uh, written by Xenophon did you guys see this he was a huge fan of the Peloponnesian War and a contemporary or like just followed uh, Thucydides and picked up exactly where the Peloponnesian War left off and wrote Hellenica. Mm. No which way. I thought was pretty cool. I didn't yeah, know that. that I, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yep. I wonder what, if it was written the princess- in the same, the same style. Is Xenophon the one who did the s- Trials of Socrates too? Yeah. 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 So. Xenophon's also interesting because he's the reason that we know some of Socrates' dialogues from Plato are accurate. 
Wow. Because most of the Socratic dialogues that Plato wrote, he made up as to use him as a character. But the four big ones, Xenophon also recorded because he was at all the events too. And so you could kind of like triangulate between the two of their recordings of them and figure out like, okay, this, this part of it actually happened. <laughs> wow. So it is kind of cool wow. that he was like a contemporary of Thucydides or like a, a mentee maybe because he was carrying that torch of like trying to accurately capture history. But in this case, you know, Socrates trial, I think, I think Socrates fought in the war too or something. It, it came like right after. Yeah. Yeah. A veteran of three major battles of the Peloponnesian war. He was considered a war hero. Yeah. The coolest thing about what you just said, there's a lot in there, but the, he was also there. Like they're just hanging out in the city of Athens. Yeah. 400 BC. Pretty cool. (laughs) It's so cool. (laughs) Has there been like a good movie? Like obviously 300 was about Sparta, but like, has there been a good movie about Athens? I don't think like so. It seems like there's some characters and there's some cool history there. Yeah, that'd be interesting. For a TV show or something? like. Yeah. I can't think of one. No. But yeah, Socrates fought in a, a few major battles. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Wow, good find, Adil. Yeah. I'm glad that I got that. I'm glad that I got that Xenophon reference right. I feel... Yeah. Very cultured now. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, should we wrap? Yep. Um, everybody knows what book we're doing next week. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Spotify or iTunes. Or uh, if you want to review something else, you can go review the House of Representatives on Google Maps. <laughs> 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 oh man there should be a twitter there probably already is a twitter account just great like out of context reviews or something like that (laughs) remember those there used to be a thing for like amazon reviews remember all those silly products on amazon that had the most hilarious reviews like the three wolf moon t-shirt and the uranium ore I, i will say reviews are like gotta be like not not for our podcast all of our listeners are are very smart and and very good at leaving reviews but if you go to amazon and you read some of the reviews like someone will give like a one star to the product and you read the review it has like nothing to do with the product like yeah yeah it'll it'll be like oh like the post office took five days to deliver this like why is that the product's (laughs) fault like yeah, I tried to contact Amazon customer service yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. Or it'll be something that's like blatantly wrong. Like there was a um like a water filter I was looking at on Amazon and it was like clearly yeah. for under the sink. Like it's in the title. And the person was like, I don't know how to put this on my faucet. Like one star for bad directions. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I'm just like, why? About- like I feel so bad for the brand getting a one star review for this. Like it's the other the one that pains title. me, the other one that pains me is when people think that like a three or a four star review is also good. Yes, I hate that. I hate that. So they'll be like, "Great product, super happy with oh, it. Like yeah. no issues. Would definitely buy again. Three yep. stars." 
You're like, what? People, people do that for books too. People do that for books yeah. too. Yeah. Well, I'll, although I don't I'll, like I the, s- the star system for books as much. I don't either. That's what I was yeah. going to say. Like on, on Amazon, I'll give like almost any book that I finish or like a five star review, but on Goodreads, I'll be a lot stricter mm. where the default might be like three or four stars. But also the stars, stars is, is like a very uh, one dimensional metric because it's like, yeah. and that, maybe this applies to podcasts too, but it's like certain books are entertaining, but I feel weird giving them five stars because i'm like oh i know there's Mm -hmm. flaws but i thoroughly enjoyed this book so like is that get a four star or a five star like i I don't know be a better rating system yeah it's like you know did you finish this would you recommend it yeah like was it you know good prose character right like i'm sure somebody will make that app eventually we've been talking Uh, about a new goodreads since we started this podcast like man it seems like it's just a graveyard of companies (laughs) yeah (laughs) No, someone will make a reading coin and do it on the blockchain. <laughs> yeah, wonder shit coins coming back. I missed that. Really? I'm pretty sure you could get ChatGPT to like build you an NFT project now. <laughs> wow. Oh I haven't seen anyone do that. <laughs> well, that sounds like your next blog post. Yep, I've got a I've got a project now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, thank you everyone for leaving reviews and we'll see you for a three body problem. See ya.